0: Thank you very much for joining us today. Western Copper recently announced its newest strategic investor in Mitsubishi Materials. And before we discuss Mitsubishi's involvement, Rio Tinto is also a shareholder. And why don't we just provide a brief background for those viewers who might not be familiar with that deal? When did they get involved and what were the terms of the Rio Tinto deal?
1: Sure. Uh, well, first of all, you know, Jimmy, it's it's always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, you know, it, it's it's great to be back and, and and chatting with you. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to kick off, uh, let's maybe just remind everyone, as, as you said, about the uh, Rio Tinto investment, and you know, the Rio Tinto investment really it, it started in 2020. Um, Rio signed a confidentiality agreement, did some initial diligence on on the project, and and you know, they came to us and said. You know, Paul, let's, uh, you know, we, we like the project, we want to do something, you know, and there was some discussion back and forth. And and, and what we ended up with was what we actually signed, which was this. It's, in, it's a strategic investment, but, you know, every one of these strategic investments has a goal. And so the goal of this Rio Tinto uh, strategic investment was to enable them to do some additional dil- diligence on the project you know, with the eye that after that diligence, we could talk about, you know, something much more serious, like you know, maybe them buying the project. And, You know, we'll, we'll see. So, um, so we we signed the uh, the uh, investor rights agreement, and and uh, they made that investment 26, uh, $25.6 dollars, gives them about eight percent of the outstanding shares. Uh, we signed that um, mid May, uh, 2021, so it's it's about two years old at this point in time. Um, and of course, the money was great, but you know, with that came some key rights, and the key rights really are um, the establishment of a technical committee which they sit on, and the right of a, to have a board observer, which you know um, allows them to make sure that you know you know what we're doing at the board level is is uh, consistent with what they want to do but really those rights were around executing the scope of work and that scope of work it was you know double checking the resource redoing the metallurgy lots of stuff on first nation engagement we spent you know a couple of days going over the tailings facility etc cetera, etc cetera. all of that work all of the technical work is essentially done you know it finished really at the end of last year and so now you know the project really is sitting internal within Rio Tinto. There, I talk to them on a you know almost weekly basis, and I'm like, "Yeah, where are you guys? What's going on?" And they're, "Well, we're dotting eyes and crossing T's, and you know, it's a big company, right? So they're doing lots of analysis of of what it all means. But um, you know, we've got this deadline of uh, November 28th where you know the current investor rights agreement will expire. So you know, the idea is that You know, well, well before that date comes, that, you know, we need to sit down and talk about what's next. So expect to be doing that here relatively shortly.
0: So that's a good overview of the Rio Tinto involvement. Now I want to discuss Mitsubishi materials. Can you provide the backstory on how they got involved?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. And so, I mean, the backstory on on Rio Tinto, or sorry, on Mitsubishi, I mean, after we signed that deal with Rio Tinto, you know, we went out, we hired some advisors, and we said, you know, very happy to have Rio Tinto here. You know, it's are there other groups out there? So last year, we signed about 10 confidentiality agreements. We had six different groups up to site. One of those groups was Mitsubishi. And, you know, they they looked at the project, and, you know, they they had publicly come out and said, look, we're looking to invest in copper projects Um you know, copper development projects, just not not only advanced and operating copper mines. Because, you know, of course, uh, you know, Rio Tinto owns and operates a number of copper mines around the world. Mitsubishi does not uh, operate, own or operate any copper mines. However, they are a minority partner in a number of copper mines around the world. And what they're interested in is the offtake, the concentrate, because they have smelters in Japan. So, You know, we so they came to site. Uh, I'll I'll never forget the site visit because it was the end of September, and the end of September in the Yukon is it can snow at the end of September. Although it actually worked out great, we had a really good site visit. Uh, Spent about a week up in the Yukon, uh, you know, with government folk as well, and um, and then they did a very deep diligence. I mean, it was uh, quite extensive. I mean, you know, we we got lots of questions and back and forth, and and then we got really to the end of last year and sort of the same thing. You know, Mitch said, Look, we love this project. We're excited that that uh, Rio Tinto is involved. You know, what's next? And so we essentially went to them and said, well, you know, we're we're not quite done with Rio here, but we're we'd be happy to offer you a similar structured deal to what we have with Rio, which is, you know, you come in for, you know, a reasonable, you know, five to ten percent. Now, we didn't want them to necessarily have more than Rio Tinto um, and, uh, at the, of, you know, as a private placement, and then we'll give you investor rights agreement and we can sort of talk about, you know, some additional work that you want to do. And so that ended up being uh, a $21 million investment, uh, which gives them 5% of the outstanding shares. And with that came in again, an investor rights agreement. So they're, they're also now on the technical committee. Um, they don't have a board observer, but they have, um, the right of first negotiation on the offtake for the period of the um, the agreement, which in this case is two years. So it's until it, we signed it in March. And so it's it valid to March 2025. Um, and then we've agreed to do some work. And, you know, most of the work is unsurprisingly um, focused on concentrate quality. And and really, it's a bit of geo just making sure that we, you know, we've done a lot of work on, on concentrate quality, but, you know, have we really made sure we've tested all the different parts of the deposit. So that's one of the things we're going to look at in some more detail here over the next couple of years with uh, with Mitsubishi.
0: And Paul, you mentioned they came in for 5%. Why would they come in for a higher number, like 19.9%? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, so I mean, part I mean, there, there's sort of two sides to this, right? So on, we didn't want them at 19.9% because we're, I mean, you know, we as a public company, but I always have to be careful that we don't sort of set up a situation where we can hand control to somebody else. And control is over 19.9%. But if we had Mitsubishi at 19.9% and Rio at 8%, those two could have a pretty short conversation and then suddenly, you know, be in charge of the, of the company and have control. So it's important that we keep you know, these strategic investments, the sum of the strategic investments, uh, less than that 19.9. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was fair to Rio for them to have necessarily more than Rio. Um, so wanted to keep them really below that, you know, essentially 8% that Rio had. But then, you know, we need to, they can't come in so low that it. That they have less than other shareholders since we argue, you know, some of our other, um, you know, funds, and that, that are shareholders we need them to have a sizable amount in order to essentially justify giving them an investor rights agreement. so yeah i mean five percent we started i think you know we sort of floated that out as a reasonable number and you know went back and forth a bit but uh, you know i was settled on pretty quickly
0: and so now we're coming up to the drilling season do does rio tinto or mitsubishi have want to do any further drilling do they want to do any other testing any other sort of due diligence in the upcoming season?
1: Like I said, Rio's is you know essentially from gathering more fresh data. They're they're not asking me for any more. Uh, with Mitsubishi, you know, we're just kicking off. So you know, I think we. I mean, we haven't put together the program yet, just in terms of dotting I's and crossing T's, But I anticipate that we'll be doing some drilling to, to produce met samples to do again, just to make sure that we have all aspects of the the deposit covered off in terms of concentrate quality and concentrate grade. We'll certainly be doing some drilling that focuses on that this year.
0: And you mentioned that you signed 10 CAs last year and and six other groups came to site. Can you still bring in another strategic investor, like another serious mining company? Yeah, I mean,
1: you yeah, know, we're we're having conversations with a number of groups Still, I mean, it's uh, it's a great project, right? And in Canada, good economics, good size. You know, we've we've done good work in terms of developing uh, the relationship with the community and the First Nations and the government. Um, so there continues to be interest. You know, not in addition to the ten signed last year. But I've actually signed two this year. Um, so we'll see. I mean, um, it's it's obviously you know the, at the front of the pack is, is Rio and Mitch Bishi who've done their diligence may you know acknowledge that the project looks very very promising and, you know entered into that next space that we've talked about but you know certainly uh these other groups are 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 behind them and and you know at various levels of diligence and analysis as well
0: well, I want to move on now and discuss the feasibility study, which came out in 2022. And one of the features that makes Western Copper and Gold so unique is the gold component and also the moly component, and the resulting byproduct credits, which will significantly reduce the cost per pound. Maybe you can just touch on that.
1: Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, it's it's uh, when you look at the value in the ground uh, of this deposit. It runs around forty-six percent copper, thirty-four uh, percent gold, and around seventeen percent uh, moly or molybdenum. And, and you know, I don't talk about moly that much because it's it's sort of you know it's the, the smallest of the three. But you know, moly is is a commodity that when we did the feasibility study, we used fourteen dollars a pound, while today it's trading for thirty-three dollars a pound. So it's getting getting a, a little more attention. Um, but yeah, I mean, having those, those byproducts really impacts the, the, the costs uh, in a positive way. And, and you know, when, when we talk, when we look at our, our projects, it's still primarily a copper project. When we actually look at the cash cost to produce a pound of copper net of byproducts, it's a negative number. I mean, what does that even mean? Um, it's actually for a project like this better to look at a co product basis. And with the co product basis, it's still a dollar fifty-four per pound of copper, and you know seven hundred ninety-nine dollars, so under eight hundred dollars per ounce of gold, and so very, very robust operating costs. And you know that's over the life of mine. I mean, if you look at this project, it's really two things drive the good economics on the project. One is early high grade. I mean, the grade over the first four years is you know, 0.65. Um, percent copper equivalent, as opposed to the 0.4 over life of mine, that significantly drives the economics. And the other one is the strip ratio. I mean, life of mine of 0.43 to one, I mean, over the first four years, less than half of that. I mean, very, very low strip ratio. Now, these are just their innate uh, aspects of the deposit, the strip ratio and the early high grade that, you know, just lends this deposit to be very economically extractive.
0: And Paul, we should also touch on the net present value and what copper price you're using.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, so, I mean, at, at uh, three sixty copper, $1,700 gold, the project puts off a 2.3 billion net present value and 18.1% IRR after tax. And, I mean, and and importantly for, you know, all of us that live in Canada and know how this works, at an $0.80, dollar, um, you know, if you put in, four dollar copper and and uh two thousand dollar gold and a $0. 74 cent dollar which is what the dollar was last time i looked at it you're looking at you know net present values of you know over five billion and you know mid mid to high 20s in terms of irr and that's and and that's also with an updated molly price which like i said doubled so you know good economics at conservative long-term values and just exceptional economics really when we look at the snapshot of the commodity price environment we're in today
0: you mentioned earlier you're not going to spend much time on exploration this year you're sitting on 46 million dollars in cash
1: yeah um but we're not going to spend much on exploration and and we're sitting on well i mean so we started the year with 23 million in cash and then we brought in uh, the 21 million from Mitsubishi and, and actually this is an important thing to point out. Um, you know when we announced the deal with Mitsubishi, Rio Tinto had the right to to top up, uh, maintain their their ownership, which they did uh, and that brought in another two million. So good good from two points. One, uh, you know two million dollars, two million dollars. So always happy to have a little more money. and also I mean it, it's it's just further affirmation of the continued interest for Rio Tinto in the project. But yeah, when we look, I mean, this year, the focus is really on 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 getting the project into the permitting process. So, um, you know, it is a pretty heavy lifting year, actually. We're, we're going to burn through, um, I mean, the the work towards permitting is, is close to about $10 million direct on, onto the permitting work. And, you know, the goal is to get our application in front of the regulator, in front of Yesa, um early next year. And so, you know, we really got to push that hard. So, That's going to be the big push. We'll have a bit of a field campaign. We're going to do some geotech work. Uh, As I said earlier, uh, we're going to do a little bit of work, you know, focusing on getting that, on the geometallurgy and getting representative samples to look at concentrates as well.
0: I want to move on now and discuss government involvement. Both the federal government and the Yukon government have made a commitment to constructing a road to the casino project. Can you provide an update on this road?
1: Sure. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I mean. And you know. It's an interesting story. I mean, the, the government, the Prime Minister of Canada, even showed up um, to make the announcement uh, end of 2017. And like all good government announcements, easy to announce, a little bit more difficult to execute. But uh, you know, flash forward to um, beginning of last year, and you know, the government signs a definitive agreement with the impacted First Nations. Um, and that actually grants um, a construction, uh, awards the construction uh, contract to actually uh, a company with a joint venture with the First Nations. And so it's the first section of the first section. It's the first, uh, you know, I think it's the first 10, 20 kilometers, but it's a $30 million contract. Like this is, you know, some real money being spent. Uh, it's called the Carvax bypass and it's, it's, you know, very useful because it allows all the, traffic to sort of bypass the town of Carmex. And so um that's under construction. It started last year, should be finishing up this year. Um, so it's uh, you know, this this and you know, this project would not have gone forward if the casino mine, you know, wasn't a project that had the economics and the support, um, really of obviously all those levels of government, but also good support from the First Nations as well.
0: Paul, the Yukon government has also stated it would like to connect to the grid in Northern British Columbia and doing so would be a game changer for casino in terms of the economics. Can you just touch on this and what it would mean for the casino project?
1: Yeah, no. and, And you took the words out of my mouth, Jimmy. I mean, this is an absolute game changer. And it's, um, and, and, I mean, just a little, I mean, this is, just a really fresh. Uh, well, it's not a fresh idea. I mean, it's certainly been an idea in the Yukon for actually not as many years as you th- As you'd think, but but you know, certainly over the past few years. But really, it kicked off. Um, there's a new premier that was sworn in in January. He's really pushing it, uh, and and the timing. It's the timing is now, because if you look at the Yukon, the Yukon right now has. They just announced last week that they're adding five more rental diesel generators. So that brings it up to 22 rental diesel generators because of running out of power. And they don't have any other options. They just keep renting these diesel generators. So, I mean, the grid itself needs a longer-term solution to get green power into the economy. So that's point one. And point two is mining's taking off. I mean, we at Casino represent, you know, they, you know, one of the largest critical minerals projects in Canada. And obviously you're hearing of the federal government, all of these initiatives around, you know, pushing these critical minerals projects. Well, you know, this is an example of of pushing it. And then you've got, you know, behind, you know, our projects, a bunch of other, uh, you know, critical mineral projects that are moving forward. So it's this is nation building. You know, this is, you know, the modern equivalent of the railway and highways and all those sort of things. It's building the grid and the, the Yukon grid and the British Columbia grid come within 760 kilometers of each other. So that's the thing that's happened is, you know, that the Yukon grid has expanded south and the BC grid has expanded north. So it's not sort of crazy distances now. So um, it's kicking off. There's a lot of excitement about this. Um you know, it's uh, there was actually an article on, on Friday on in the Yukon News, um, you know, which is the local newspaper up there. And there was one, you know, a couple of weeks beforehand. Everybody's pushing for this. You know, it's great for everyone involved. And as you said, it'll be just an absolute game changer for our project. Because, I mean, and I don't know what the power costs will be, but it'll be, I mean, in BC, industrial power rates are like four and a half cents, right? So. Uh, even if, even if it's double that by the time it gets up to, to our mind, this will still be lower cost power than we're talking. But more importantly, the casino project, I mean, our feasibility study talks about, uh, 1.2 billion tons of mill reserve, and that's a 27 year my life. That is one third of the overall known deposit, let alone what else can be found. So we've got a mine up there that has you know over 80 years of ore identified having that great connection just absolutely future proofs it you know make sure that the copper and gold and molly and silver coming out of that are you know green and you know just establishes a great infrastructure for this mine to operate for you know the 80 years of of material that's been identified so we're really excited about about it i mean i'm you know encouraging the government to do whatever they can do to accelerate moving forward. But uh, yeah, I know it's a great development.
0: Well, OEMs have become very aggressive in the lithium sector. General Motors earlier this year made a $650 million investment in lithium Americas. Two years ago, you never would have dreamt of an OEM making an investment in an upstream operation like that. And you mentioned earlier that you've signed a dozen DAs here in the past year. And I'm just wondering if you're seeing any interest from OEMs?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, none of those dozen uh, CAs were, were were with OEM. And I mean, the other one uh, which you missed was Stellantis, you know, the, the uh, parent company of uh, Dodge, Chrysler, Fiat uh, made a major investment in McEwen Mining in Argentina as well. So, you know, you are starting to see this actually even in the copper sector. And so... It's an exciting development. I think it's an important development. Um, The mining industry is always, always uh, undercapitalized, particularly at the exploration and development phase. I mean, this is why you have things like flow through tax credits in Canada. Because if you didn't have them, you would it would be very challenging for exploration companies to attract capital. So, you know, it's this weird disconnect where you know these OEMs know they need to have a secure um, supply of, of copper and lithium and cobalt. And yet on the other end, you know, you have these, you know, well-established exploration companies with great individuals or development companies such as ourselves um, that, you know, have have historically been undercapitalized and are not seeing that capital coming back. So I think you're going to see more and more of it. Um, And excited about that because of the capital side of things, but also excited about that, uh, about that because it will add more weight to, you know, actually getting some of these projects fast-tracked, actually beginning to cut some of the bureaucratic red tape between, you know, discovering the mine, you know, engineering the mine, and then actually all the regulatory process before you're you're allowed to start construction. So, um, you know, the federal government saying good things about that. Um, you know, we had uh, the deputy, Prime Minister Christian Freeland talked about fast-tracking uh, critical mineral projects and so happy to see that. But you know, I think we as an industry need to keep that pressure on to, to ensure that there is some discussion about fast-tracking that and of course if you bring in car manufacturers and other you know heavy industry to also put that pressure on, I think we're going to maybe see something get done.
0: Paul, as we wrap up, what can investors expect in terms of news flow from Western copper and gold in the coming months?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll have a little bit of news on permitting. We'll be announcing the summer program after we, we've, you know, finished meeting with Mitsubishi and Rio and, and sorted that out. Um, but really I think the news everyone's looking for is, is what's next in terms of our agreement with, with Rio Tinto. It's expiring in November. Um, you know, I will be, as I said, sitting down here hopefully shortly and, and talking about what's next there. Um, so, that's that's the news that everyone, including myself, is waiting for, um, and yeah, and then and then I'll be honest. I expect to see some good announcements on this grid interconnect. Actually, and it'll just be from the Yukon government, uh, you know, pushing that forward. And you know, as we talked about, that's a game changer for the project, and for the territory, and will have a big impact uh, on on uh, our project and the economics of the project.
0: And with all those CAs, who knows, maybe you'll announce another strategic investor. Exactly. (laughs) Those are your words, some mine, but uh, maybe. Well, Paul, that was a great update and congratulations on your newest strategic investor in Mitsubishi materials. And we look forward to our next discussion. Once again, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.